Good morning, everyone. There's still some negotiations happening. We'll, uh... <laughs> Don't raise your hands to this question, but I wonder how many of you play the lottery. <laughs> the current estimated jackpot for the Hoosier lottery is $255 million. $255 million. What would you do with that kind of money? As a kid, I often heard my dad talk about what he would do with his lottery winnings someday. I remember going home after uh, baseball, we'd leave the, leave the ballpark and we'd have to stop by the gas station because he just had to get his lotto ticket. You can't win if you don't play after all. Now, my dad, he, he was pretty serious about this. He would even show us the designs that he drew up for, for the dream, for his dream home, right? When he, when he won the lotto. Well, it wasn't until I was about 10 that I realized he never really was going to win the lotto, and we were never really going to move into that dream home. Now, we all know how terrible our odds are for winning the lottery, so why do people still play? Here's what I think. I think it's because of the hope, however tiny it might be, of reversing one's fortunes. For the father stuck in a soul-draining job, winning means the reversal of fortunes. For the widow without enough for retirement, winning means the reversal of fortunes. That's why a recent study on lottery playing shows that the highest rate of participation is found among the lowest socioeconomic status. The poorer you are, the more likely you play. Why? <laughs> because of the hope however miniature it is, of reversing one's fortunes. Our scripture text for today is about the reversal of fortunes. Gospel writer Luke, he's already set us up in the previous six chapters. He set us up to expect in the ministry of Jesus, there will be the reversal of fortunes. There's a line among preachers that goes, a text without a context is a pretext. So here's the preceding context in Luke's gospel. In Luke 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, praises God for pulling the powerful down and lifting up the lowly. That's the reversal of fortunes. In Luke 3, Isaiah the prophet's words are remembered and applied to John the Baptist. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. This is a graphic depiction of the reversal of fortunes. And in Luke 6, just before our passage today, Jesus pronounces blessings on the poor and woes on the rich. Blessed are you who are poor, Jesus says, for yours is the kingdom of God. But how terrible for you who are rich because you have already received your comfort. This is the reversal of fortunes Jesus is talking about. It's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, and it comforts those of us who feel low today. But for those of us who are comfortable today, it disturbs, irritates, and pricks us. The reversal of fortunes is good news to the poor, but then, what is it to the rich? With this in mind, let us hear the first of two stories today. Jesus has just finished teaching the crowds about this 
upside-down kingdom, about loving one's enemies. And then we have this. Luke 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him. He loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And when Jesus went with him, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man who set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of the Lord. The centurion in Capernaum is rich. He has power and authority. And surprisingly, he becomes our answer to the question, what does this reversal of fortunes mean for us who are rich? But before we answer this, I first have to convince you that you are, in fact, rich. Studies show that very few of us Americans consider ourselves rich. I suspect, I suspect it's one of the ways we justify our greed before Jesus. We all look up to those better off than ourselves, and we say, now they are rich, not me. We covet our neighbor's house, our neighbor's truck, our neighbor's vacation, And therefore, we count ourselves outside of the category of the rich. This is true, studies show, even among millionaires. (laughs) Somebody is always better off, and they are the ones that are rich, not me. But here's the true state of our world's wealth. I showed this slide to you all about a year ago, and it deserves to be remembered. This graphic reminds us that almost half of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day, and at least 80% live on less than $10 a day. So friends, if you take in more than 300 bucks a month, that's 3600 a year, then you are in the top 20% of the wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that? <laughs> now I know that $10 a day can sometimes stretch further in places like Haiti than it does in our own country. I get that. But it still cannot pay for things we take for granted. $10 a day cannot be stretched to pay for anything beyond the most basic education for your kids. It generally cannot be used to pay for doctors when your kid comes down sick. $10 cannot be spent on home improvement or electricity or gas. And it certainly cannot be used, but only very sparingly, 
for transportation or accessories or any form of entertainment. Food, clothes, shelter, and a few other basics. That's it, friends, plus whatever charity comes your way from others. That's the reality of 80% of people living in today's world. People made in God's image. People to whom Jesus offers the good news of his upside-down kingdom, wherein the low are lifted up and the rich are brought down. Friends, that's the reality. And we are the rich, all of us. If you still remain to be convinced, try living like the 80% this month, spending money on nothing besides rice, basic housing, and patches for your clothes. (laughs) Yes, we are rich. And yes, Jesus says... How terrible for you who are rich, because you have already received your comfort. Ouch, (laughs) that stings, Lord. What are we then to do? Should we just mope around in our guilt, paralyzed by our privilege? (laughs) I don't think that's the answer. I think the centurion is our answer. You see, the centurion is a rich white man (laughs) from Rome. He's a man with authority and power. He says to one, go, and he goes, and he says to another, come, and he comes. He's the commander of about 100 men of the Roman army. And Rome is the most powerful empire of the world at that time. But in spite of all this, his attitude is one we all must adopt if we are going to follow Jesus. His story takes place in Capernaum. This is the home base of Jesus three-year ministry around the the Sea of Galilee and and what's modern-day Israel. Jesus has just finished talking about this upside-down kingdom, about loving one's enemies, when a group of Jewish elders come up to him. Now, they come on behalf of the centurion, who is their benefactor. You see, the centurion and the Jewish elders, they have a professional relationship. It was normally social taboo for Greeks to interact with Jews and vice versa. This this isn't something that happened except for these professional relationships. That's why the centurion has to send them to get Jesus. He's keeping things professional. Otherwise, he's afraid Jesus might not come because of the social taboo that prevents persons in some categories from associating with those in others. Now, this arrangement between the centurion and the elders, it's called a patron-client relationship. Or we could give it the nickname, you owe me. This was a common arrangement in the first century world, and the patron would use his authority to benefit the client. And so the centurion benefits the Jewish elders by building them a synagogue. But this gift was, it was not without strings attached. As a recipient of such a gift, the elders had to return the favor. They were held accountable by this unwritten contract. What's going on in our story is that the centurion is cashing in on the favor owed him by the elders. So when the elders meet with Jesus, our text says, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, he is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people. It is he who built the synagogue. This is not the normal way Jews talk about Roman soldiers, but they owe him. Now what's remarkable are the four Greek words that come next in the story. 
Jesus eperuita sun autois. Jesus went with them. <laughs> Friends, Jesus, the one who has just taught that the poor are blessed and the rich ought to be concerned. <laughs> Jesus, who fulfills the words of Isaiah by filling valleys and leveling mountains. Jesus, whose mother praised God because he pulls down the powerful and lifts up the lowly. Jesus went with them in order to help a rich Roman soldier. So he practices what he just preached. This is where loving your enemies will take you. Jesus went with them to help him who was rich, him who was like a mountain, strong, to help him who was powerful. Jesus does not go to judge or condemn the man, but with every intention of entering his house and helping him. I guess it turns out there is nobody Jesus won't help, no matter what their status or religion or social category. But before he's able to meet the centurion face to face, Jesus is met by a second entourage. This time, it's the centurion's friends. Now things have become even more personal. In sending his friends this time, the centurion is trusting that Jesus will ignore the social customs of his day, Jews not interacting with Greeks except professionally. And he's played his cards right, friends. Jesus ignores the norms, and he listens to the friends. Now, what his friends tell Jesus, did you catch this when, when, the, when the story was read? What his friends tell Jesus directly contradicts what the elders tell him. The elders hyped up the man's reputation and honor, saying, he is worthy of having you do this for him. But the friends relay the following message. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. Friends, this is what's required for us who are rich. It's called humility. That's it. The way of the centurion is the way of humility. The way of Jesus is the way of humility. It's the answer to the question for us in the world's top 20%. What then should we do? We should humble ourselves. We should obey Romans 12 when it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. If we don't lower ourselves before the presence of Jesus, something else will eventually end up bringing us down. Either way, we who are up must come down. For in Jesus, mountains are made low. Make no mistake about it. This is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus is governing. So let us humble ourselves before the mighty power of Jesus. That's what the centurion does. And when he does it, Jesus responds not with another list of woes upon the rich, but Jesus responds with amazement. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So when the two groups, the two entourages, when they return to the house, they find the servant in good health. Friends, these events give us good reason to believe that though we are rich, when we humble ourselves, Jesus will surely come to our aid. 
when you humble yourself, Jesus will step in to your moment of need. The higher you are, the more humility is required. But when you do it, Jesus will surely show up. Friends, that's when we discover that it's not our willpower that counts, but it's God's power. It's the power of Jesus working through you that matters, friends, not your willpower. (laughs) Don't play the fool and pretend your willpower can get you through whatever you're going through. How long have you tried that? (laughs) How is that going for us? Friends, I'm here to tell you that it's the power of Jesus that you want, and he is so willing and ready to give it to you and to lift you up. But you can't receive it until you acknowledge your need for it. So make the words of the centurion your own and say to Jesus, I am not worthy for you to come to me, but just speak the word and I trust your healing will come. One of Jesus' closest followers, the one named Peter, he had to learn this lesson the hard way. There was a time when he was young and arrogant, trusting in his own willpower. And so he declared to Jesus, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But his willpower failed him, as it fails us. And he abandoned Jesus. But because Jesus is the exact representation of our gracious God. He forgave him and restored him and lifted him up from his humiliation. For this reason, Peter is able to say boldly to us, and we'll wrap our first story up with these words. First Peter 5, Everyone, clothe yourselves with humility toward each other. God stands against the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Therefore, Humble yourselves under God's power so that he may raise you up in the last day. Throw all your anxieties onto him because he cares about you. That's the theme of Jesus' ministry that Luke drives home over and over again. And Peter never forgets it. May we who are rich in this life remember it too. Humbling ourselves, thinking of others as better than ourselves, and using whatever riches we have to bring health to others. I could say a lot more about this story, but we have one more story to read. It happens right after the interaction with the centurion. Now, for those of you who are not feeling so rich today, to those of you who are feeling quite low, this story goes out to you. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bear, and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. 
this word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Apparently, there are no perimeters on the reach of Jesus' ministry of grace. There are no borders for Jesus' ministry of grace. One moment, he's extending grace to a high and mighty centurion, and the next, he is moved with compassion for the lowest of the low, a widow who has just lost her only son, a rich man and a poor woman, a Gentile and a Jew. Social norms are disregarded by Jesus on both accounts as compassion wells up within him. There's perhaps nothing more devastating than losing a child. It is one of the most difficult of the human experiences, and it's not the way it should be. We've pastored a few people in our lives who have gone through such experiences, and Psalm 88 comes to mind. (laughs) Out of all the Psalms of Lament, and there are many of them, Psalm 88 stands alone as the most despairing. While the others possess some glimmer of hope, some sense of trust in God despite this terrible suffering, Psalm 88 does not. Maybe this one is reserved for the emotions of those who have lost a child. The psalm ends like this. Why do you reject me? Why do you reject my very being, Lord? Why do you hide your face from me? You've made my loved ones and companions distant. My only friend is darkness. That's the end. I wonder if Psalm 88 was buried in the heart of the widow in our story. One who had buried not just her spouse, but also her only son, a young man. How does Jesus react to people like this? To people whose prayer is Psalm 88? To people in such deep depression because of all they've lost? To people who wrestle so mightily with their emotions? How does Jesus react to such people? Does he avoid them? as we so often do, unsure of what to say, not wanting to feel awkward? Does he protect his own emotions by saying to them, I'll pray for you, and then offering a routine prayer so he can move on and think about happier things? Is that what Jesus does? Does he offer positive, upbeat encouragement to such people? How does Jesus react to the lowest of the low? Verse 13 When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. The Lord saw her, had compassion for her, and said to her, do not weep. So it is with you and I. The Lord sees you, all of you, you in all your brokenness and pain, you in all your self-doubt and insecurity, you in all your questions The Lord sees you, and the Lord has compassion on you. The Lord kindly gives you a tissue and says, do not weep. Compassion is the key of our story. It's the turning point. It creates opportunities that had not yet been imagined. The raising of the dead. Jesus' compassion for a mourning widow is the turning point of our story. Compassion, the word, come with passion to suffer. To suffer with, that's what compassion is. 
Jesus suffers with the widow, and he suffers with us. Jesus identifies with her pain. He enters into it. He enters into her experience, and he allows it to affect him. Jesus becomes vulnerable to her, opening his heart so that he feels her emotions. That's what it means to show compassion. It's not to feel bad for someone at a distance while guarding oneself from experiencing pain. It's opening up one's heart and emotionally experiencing the pain that another experiences. Jesus emotionally suffers with her. Friends, that's the heart of God for sinners like us. Not only that, but it's the heart God wants to give us for others, especially for the lowly. I will give you a new heart, God says, and it's a heart of compassion. Compassion does not say, oh, what a pity, poor old woman. Compassion does not say, I'll pray for you and then move on with its day as if nothing has changed. Compassion does not say, well, I don't see what the big deal is. In fact, compassion does not say anything at all. Compassion suffers with. It enters the experience of another without judging, and it simply feels the pain for a moment that is present in another person. As such, compassion is intensely personal. It requires a real face and a real name and a real interaction. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. Friends, the more I study Luke's gospel, the more strongly I believe that Jesus wants to give us a new heart of compassion for the lowly. Jesus wants to give us his compassion for refugees and his compassion for illegal immigrants. Jesus wants to give us his compassion for black lives and the rural poor and the autistic boy bullied in school. Jesus wants to give us a new heart of compassion for the widow and prisoner, the shut-in and the disabled. That's because Jesus' compassion enters into the experience of every human being. There are no perimeters boxing in his grace. Jesus draws no party lines, which limit his willingness to identify only with those on his side. Therefore, as his followers, it also should be for us. That's why Jesus commands us, love your enemy. To love, as defined by Jesus, is to show compassion to one's enemy. Friends, I really believe Jesus has ready for us a heart of compassion. It's on his fingertips, and he's waiting to stitch it deep into our being. But are we ready to receive it? (laughs) Are we prepared for the pain that compassion requires? Are we prepared for the pain that compassion requires? Or do we prefer the wide road, the road well-traveled, the road that keeps us comfortable, sitting in our lazy boy, distant from the sufferers, able to make opinions? The wide road would have us pick sides on matters in which we have little control and show compassion only to those on our side. The wide road is littered with electronic road rage, and God is not happy about it. For this is the God who takes the path of downward mobility. In the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity humbles himself, taking the form of a slave and endures the pain that compassion requires. That's the reason we have a cross to look at every week. 
our God is a God who has, choo- has chosen for himself the reversal of fortunes. The Almighty leaving the comforts of heaven to experience the pains of earth. Your pains. Why would God do this? Compassion. <laughs> for God saw us and was filled with compassion on you and I. Compassion on our enemies. In fact, we were all God's enemies at once, estranged from him. But now we have been shown mercy. Therefore, let us open our hearts to all flesh and let us receive the divine gift of compassion for our neighbor, wherever they are, in whatever social category they've been given. Sure, there will come a time for voting in two more years or in four. There will come a time for policy making, and for most of us it's largely out of our hands. And sure, there is a place for rigorous debate on how best to structure our society. We call this politics. But friends, let us not forget that the time for compassion is now. It's always now. Compassion is always in season for the followers of Jesus. (laughs) In every place, for everyone, we are Christians for Christ's sake. Therefore, we must imitate God's compassion. We must enter the experience of another, get to know their name, hear their story, suffer with them, feel their pain, remember their name, and pray for the grace of God to touch their broken bodies and raise them from the ash heap. That's what Jesus does to the widow. I could say so much more about this second story, about the miracle itself and how it foreshadows Jesus' resurrection about the connections between Jesus and Elijah, as Amanda read earlier, and Elisha. We don't have time for that now, but I encourage you to go deeper into the text by following that that sermon notes section, going deeper. For now, we must end, and I want to close by telling one last story. It's a story about another boy who had all but died, and his mother was weeping, and Jesus stepped in and showed compassion once more. But this story took place just a few months ago, And it took place in the city of Tijuana, Mexico. Here, Jesus steps in, but he steps in through a church who practices the compassion of God. Here's a picture of some of the group. The pastors of this church happen to be friends with Stephanie and I, and uh, I just talked with with one of them yesterday, and she was still telling that, uh, talking about how God is still impacting their community because of what happened. So here's what happened. Some of you may have read it. It was in the RCA Today, January edition. It begins with a quote from the youth director reflecting on the mission experience. Our biggest story had nothing to do with a building of a house, but the building of our hearts, says Jody Ellingson of her church's recent volunteer service trip to Mexico. Ellingson, the student ministries director for Peace Reform Church in Egan, Minnesota, Along with 50 other church members, they headed south to build houses near Tijuana. On the last day of the trip, she and several other adults were running behind. A large group of mostly students had already left for the worksite. En route to the worksite, Ellingson and the other adults came upon a commotion on the side of a road. That's when they noticed a young boy lying trapped under a minivan taxi. More than 20 locals were standing around the accident, but no one was helping the boy. The Peace Reformed group sprung into action. Together, they lifted the van off the boy who was not breathing, and one of them crawled under the van to free his arm from a wheel. 
A nurse in the group began CPR with help from two others who were also certified. They had to revive the boy three times before he started breathing on his own. The rest of the volunteers began praying over the boy, and when his mother arrived in tears, prayed with her as well. They didn't speak the same language, but she didn't need words. She needed a stable person to hold her upright, says Ellingson. After an ambulance took the boy and his mother away, the group prayed once more, and then, I quote, we all just lost it. God kept us strong through the whole thing until he didn't need us anymore, and then we were able to just kind of fall apart. We went to build three houses and love on the homeowners, but in addition, God used us to save a life that may not have made it through. This event had nothing to do with eight months of planning we did for the trip. God is always working, and we are often not aware of all he is doing. Friends, compassion opens ourselves up to possibilities we've never imagined. Jesus raising the son of a widow. A church group raising a van off a little boy and rescuing him. Friends, God is always working, and God works through people who have humbled themselves, surrendered to the power of Jesus, and people who are ready for a new heart of compassion. By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, may this be true for you and for I today and always. Let us pray. God of all compassion, here we are, recipients of your grace, your compassion. We were enemies of you, and you had compassion on us. And so, Lord, may we have compassion on our enemies. May we love them. May we know their stories. May you give us the heart of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.